This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Joseph Luzzi discusses his new memoir, My Two Italys. Then, PW VP Carl Pritzkat unveils PW's new tool for indie authors. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So there's not a lot going on on the nonfiction side, Mark. No, not much at all. In fact, we only have one debut. And that is all the way down at number 23. It's uh, Neil Armstrong, A Life of Flight by Jay Barbie. Uh, It's coming out from St. Martin's. And uh, this is a book basically about Neil Armstrong's space life. We say the concentration on Armstrong's space-related career makes this less than a definitive biography, but it's still an eye-opening and entertaining tale of the race to the moon. So uh, that was our review. And uh, w- what is interesting, what I've been, what I have seen on this week's bestseller list, are a couple of jumps. First of all, I just have to note uh, number two and number three are uh, kind of dueling Clinton books. At number two is Blood Feud by Edward Klein, the Clintons versus the Obamas, and at number three is Hillary Clinton's autobiography, Hard Choices. So those two are kind of battling it out themselves. Topping the list is America, Imagine a World Without Her. This is Dinesh D'Souza's book. Now, this jumped up from 22 to number one. And uh, it went from 4,000 copies to 45,000 copies. Wow. And so we, we ask, what, what's going on? Well, there are a couple things that had gone on. First of all, Dinesh, uh, at one point, Costco had apparently, or Dinesh thought, pulled copies of, of the book from its stores. And so Dinesh went on a public uh, tirade, which got picked up by many of the news agencies about this. So I think that jumped, you know, that kind of boosts sales quite a bit. But also he has a a documentary coming out of the same name. So that had just come out last week too. So I think that found a lot of uh, readers. That movie found a lot of readers. And uh, another one that was, uh, that jumped up from 21 actually to number seven is Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. And this was interesting because it is a Hachette book. And Mm. this is one of the publishers that has been in, um, battles with with Amazon. So this one has just kind of miraculously jumped up or maybe not so miraculously. I I didn't I saw some more news items on Malcolm Gladwell, but I'm not too sure what the real reason is for the jump. So that's what we have on nonfiction. It's always interesting to see how these books move and jostle one another for position. Yeah. Especially on a week like this when it it really is all about the changes on the list rather than anything new being introduced. Right, right. exactly. And, and how are we looking fiction? Well, on the fiction side, we do have a new number one. Um, okay. It's Brad Thor's Act of War. This is a, a thriller. Um, and you know, 
Thor has written a, quite a number of thrillers. This one involves a CIA agent mysteriously dying overseas and a counterterrorism operative who has to go and investigate what's going on in addition to carrying out a number of different operations uh, mm. to save the country as one does. So that's at number one, Brad Thor's Act of War. Great. And then uh, number four, we have Power Play by Catherine Coulter. Um, this is another thriller. It's the 18th one featuring FBI Special Agent Davis Sullivan. Uh, and this one involves a carjacking, uh, U.S. ambassador, and uh, a mental institution. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's some exciting, complicated stuff going on there. The PW Review says that uh, the reason for the attacks that start the whole book off remain unclear to the end, but there's some romantic and sexual attraction that adds a little bit of spice. So that's Power Play by Catherine Coulter at number mm. four. Uh, down at 11, we have The Girls of August by Anne Rivers Siddons. Um, this is a, a literal beach read. It is about four women <laughs> who hang out at the beach renting a house. Um, and you know, they, they have done this for decades. And it follows them through the changes in their lives and the ways that they connect. So this is the opposite of those those thrillers. If you want something that's not so much with the pulse-pounding excitement, but right. is much more emotional, um, then, then this is probably more your style. And finally, down at number 12, I just wanted to make note of Landline by Rainbow Rawl. This is, uh, her, her name may be familiar as a young adult author. Um, she's the author of uh, Fangirl and mm. Eleanor and Park, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think there's some rumors of a movie in the works for the latter. This is her first book for adults, and this is a novel about the ups and downs of marriage. Uh, our review says that Rowell is, as always, a fluent and enjoyable writer. The pages whip by, um, but something about the relationship between the central characters, uh, you know, husband and wife, mm-hmm. who are, whose marriage is faltering, uh, feels hollow, like it's missing the complexity of adult love despite the plot's special effects. But uh, the publisher announced a first printing of 100,000 copies, so they're clearly expecting it to do pretty well. Oh, and wow. And what publisher is that? St. Martin's Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now it's at number 12 on our list. Um, it sold about 6,400 of those 100,000 copies in its first week out, so uh, we'll see how it does from here. Yeah, let's follow it. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joseph Luzzi tells us about his pilgrimages to Florence. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. With me is special guest interviewer Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Hi, Andrew. Greetings, Rose. Always nice to have you here. And today we've got Joseph Luzzi on the line. His new memoir is My Two Italys. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book. Well, it's a book that I've, I've wanted to write for a long time. I think um, even going back to when I started graduate school in 1994, I had the idea of writing a book that would kind of counterbalance um, the, the career that I was embarking on as first a student of Italian literature, getting my Ph.D., and then becoming a professor of it. There was this other Italian world that I 
felt deeply connected to, and that was the world of my childhood, uh, the world of my family. My family had immigrated to the United States from Calabria. Um, they had a, it was a sort of a poor village life that they left behind in the in the mid 1950s to come to the United States. So I grew up in a in a kind of ethnic limbo. You know, we weren't officially Italian because we weren't, you know, living in Italy. We weren't speaking the language. My parents spoke this Calabrian dialect that was kind of frozen in time. And yet we certainly didn't have a typically American house, whatever that is, right? You know, with all the stereotypes of the, the all-American family. Ours was, we, we, you know, my parents raised their own animals. They bottled uh, veg. They bottled. Um, preserves and and fruits and vegetables they you know had their own livestock it was it was a little bit of an italian farm in this suburban rhode island um town that we lived in so there was this collision of worlds that i experienced when i was younger and i went on to kind of do it work in traditional high italian culture so-called um, but it was really the the world of my parents that I always kept in mind. And so I, I wanted to, in some way, address that world. Um, and it took a while to get to the point where I was settled enough in my career. I felt I had learned enough about the subjects that I had made into my specialization to kind of open up my writing and write for a more general audience about the 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 relationship, the dialogue, and sometimes the all-out struggle between the, uh, you know, the Southern Italian immigrant world I had grown up with and the more Northern kind of professional, um, high cultural Italy that uh, I would spend the next 20 years, starting back in 1994, as my, you know, professional life. In My Two Italys, you talk about Calabria, the, the Italy of your parents, and Florence, which is the Italy of your academic studies. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, you know, Florence, uh, as, as, as I, I wrote in my book, you know, when I went to Florence as an undergraduate, I was a, as a junior, it was, it was almost like, a, you know, I, it wasn't just a year abroad for me. It was more of like a, a holy pilgrimage, right? This was the, the, the place, the hometown of Dante, the hometown of Michelangelo. This was the kind of ultimate symbol of this Renaissance Italy that was completely missing from the Italy that I had grown up with. I had grown up with my 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 father's and my mother's memories of life in Italy, but it had nothing to do with this kind of this world of of the kind of cultural riches that were celebrated everywhere. And so Florence was the kind of symbol of this pilgrimage that I was making from my family, Southern Italian world, to a completely different Italy. And it turned out to be nothing like I I had expected. You know, I had expected to waltz into a, a merchant in ivory set. And instead, it was a, it was a very kind of busy, modern, uh, noisy city that, you know, was, was filled with tourists and certainly had beautiful museums and, and great works of art, but also was a pretty demanding place to adjust to, especially because I really didn't know Italy at that point. I mean, I knew I had 
the world that my parents described to me, which didn't exist any longer. They had left Italy in the 50s, and I had never traveled to the country. You know, we were, uh, uh, my family was a kind of working class family, very modest means. We didn't have the luxury of travel. So it was a kind of baptism by fire, that, that first trip to Florence. And it turned out to be the turning point uh, of my life in a lot of ways, because I would go to Florence partly by chance, partly by purpose, for the next 25 years uh, on a very regular basis, either to teach, either to research, either to study, uh, sometimes as a traveler, but it was my point of reference. And so Florence, I had a, an intense relationship with the city that was mine, and, and I think it was special. In the, when I say it was mine, it, was, it had nothing to do with the Italy that I, I had inherited from my parents. And so it became a kind of symbol of, you know, the, the two sides of the coin, the Florentine world that I had chosen and the Calabrian world that had been given to me as a kind of birthright. So when you went to Florence, did you speak Italian? You mentioned that your parents only spoke that Calabrian dialect. You know, I had I had grown up with a dialect and I had... I, I had the ear for it, so to speak, and I had, it was part of my subconscious, my earliest memories were in the dialect. It was close enough to standard Italian that I could piece it together. So it wasn't difficult for me to learn standard Italian just because of this, you know, intense kinship and proximity that the dialect had with it. And yet it was a different language. Um, so there was a, a kind of distance between the Calabrian dialect and, and the Tuscan dialect, the Florentine, which really feeds into the book because that's, that's a distance that is central to Italian history. Italy lacked a common language. It, uh, it was only unified in 1861. A lot of people don't realize that. It's actually a younger country than the United States as, uh, you know, in terms of political unification. And before unification, the entire peninsula, each region of it spoke its own dialect. So you had the Calabrian dialect, the Sicilian dialect, Milanese, Lombard, what have you. Every different region spoke its own. There were certainly points of um, common contact where you could understand some aspects of one dialect vis-a-vis -vis the other, but the common words, the everyday words, you know, like uh, when you want to say, let's go, like in Italian, you'd say, yamanino, which is very different from standard Italian, andiamo. And so you had all these, these great differences and that kind of distance between a dialect and an official language, which I experienced growing up because I would go on to learn standard Italian, I would go on to teach standard Italian and work in that world, was also a mirror in my very small way of, of, of the larger Italian story because Italy itself lacked a standard language until it got one with unification, but it was only really in the mid-1900s after compulsory education and, believe it or not, television, <laughs> which mm -hmm. spread the common uh, language throughout the country that most people gradually moved away from their dialect and to standard Italian. So it, in my very small way, my, you know, my, the, the, my travels from the Calabrian dialect to the Italian language were sort of played out in, in a large scale in Italy in its history as it experienced what, you know, the writers called the questione della lingua, the language question. Hmm. Talk to us a little bit about Italy's southern problem. 
You know, the, the, the South in Italy um, has, it, it goes by this name, Il Mezzogiorno, which is uh, midday, right? It, it's because of its position on the, the map, the, the kind of, the land of the midday sun is often is kind of nickname for it, partly in reference to the intense heat, and again, technically because of its geographic location. But it has for a long time, for centuries, been known as a particular political conundrum in that there's quite an intense divide between the Italian North and the Italian South in terms of standards of living, employment. Um, There was a famous study by Putnam, Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, about the difference between there's much more kind of civic organization in the North, sense of civic uh, identity, than in the South, where there there tends to be uh, one's allegiances tend towards to be either family or the local community, rather than these kind of civic organizations. So it is part of the Italian lore. It's, It's dangerous to, you know, draw a straight line and say there's the North and the South and this happens here and this happens there. That's not the case at all, and I'm certainly not suggesting that in my book. But my book does draw attention to the fact that there has been an historical divide between the Italian North and South that I experienced in my family and in my personal life in that my family came from whether Italy as a whole, you know, whatever the general standards of living were in southern Italy, my family's region was very poor. So they left a very poor region for more opportunities in the United States. And then it gave me the chance to to kind of travel and get an education and see a lot of the north. And so I, I could kind of see that north-south divide within my own family and my own life. And what was interesting to me in writing the book is, you know, you learn that Southern Italy has had its own cultural ferment just that rivals the North. You know, you think of uh, Baroque Naples, the great artists and thinkers that have come out of there, like uh, Giambattista Vico or, you know, the great uh, Francesco de Santis. These are epical thinkers in the Italian tradition. Uh, Benedetto Croce is another one that comes to mind. So this isn't to say that we didn't have the same sort of splendor and and cultural splendor in the South as we did in the North, more in the sense that historically, over time, the long durée, there has definitely been a lag in terms of those things that I mentioned in the beginning, you know, political organization, uh, standards of living, and kind of um, a general civic sense of the uh, powers of central government um, have really been more associated with the North. Now, some people see that in a negative sense because the the Risorgimento um, was, in the views of many, largely driven by Northern Italy that only really co-opted the South into political unification to serve its own purposes. That's a very complex question that, you know, I certainly can't address in a brief interview, nor in in my book, because it's something you can write a book on by itself. But, you know, the bottom line is that there is this uh, this issue called the question of the Italian South and, and its relation to the North. So the the poet Percy Shelley also wrote about two Italys. What what was the context of that? Shelley wasn't talking about the contrast between North and South Italy. Uh, Shelley was talking about the contrast between living Italy, contemporary Italy, and its ancient 
splendors. It's ancient. It's the monumental culture. He he had the feeling that when he got to Rome and he looked around and he saw the monuments and he saw, you know, all the beauty that had surrounded him and the the disrepair that 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 was that had fallen it had fallen into. His feeling was that, you know, on the one hand, you have this Italy that draws pilgrims like me. Shelley went into voluntary exile. He left England to live in Italy in the last years of his life. That draws so many. It draws so many for the Grand Tour in Shelley's time. It draws so many tourists today. And he saw a contrast between that and what he called the, you know, Rome as a city of the dead, the lack of cultural energy in the present. Now, I think that comment that Rome as a city of the dead is interesting in two ways. One, Shelley is wrong and he's right. <laughs> I think he's wrong in that if he had really looked around Rome and if he'd really looked around Italy in the early 1800s when he was there, he would have seen that there was a lot going on, right? Italy was in the middle of its, in the kind of early stages of its risorgimento. There were amazing authors like Hugo Foscolo, Alessandro Manzoni, who wrote The Betrothed, Giacomo Leopardi. You know, these were major writers, major European writers, not just Italian writers. So, he certainly could have found some living, vibrant, contemporary culture. But he wasn't interested in that. You know, he went to Italy as a, a kind of cultural pilgrim. Where he's right, and this I didn't really understand until I wrote My Two Italies, and part of it takes place in Rome, and a part of the book was written in Rome. And in a scholarly article, I had taken Shelley to task for calling Italy a, a place of the dead and ignoring that contemporary culture and not seeing everything that was going on. But I saw the spirit behind his words when I was there in 2012 writing the book. I felt a kind of um, some of the stagnancy, some of the heaviness, some of the, the burden of culture, which I think the film The Great Beauty, La Grande Bellezza, does a great job of talking about the Sorrentino film that won the Academy Award for Foreign Film. It's about the burden of living with such a rich monumental past and how sometimes that can crowd out the present. Even physically, you know, I think Sorrentino's film does a great job of showing you just how imposing this, this beautiful, uh, you know, these beautiful forms, these sculptures, these architectural uh, constructions of the past are and how they make it hard to create a living space in the present. And I think sometimes that I had that feeling a little bit in Rome. I, I, I kind of could channel and, and sense what Shelley was getting at, this sense of a kind of a heaviness and a lack of change, a lack, a kind of stasis in Italian society. And that's why I think he said, you know, we should look at his, his quotation a little closely and, and see the spirit behind him. I don't think he was trying to, you know, he wasn't speaking as a demographer saying that we need, you know, that this is an underpopulated area. I think he was saying that there's, there's a, something about life among this cultural splendor that can create a heaviness and that can somehow um, crowd out the present as it were. So how do you see yourself? Uh, do you see yourself as Italian-American, as an American, as a, a Calabrian? What's your view of your own identity? Well, you know, da there's this beautiful moment in Dante's um, De Volgare Eloquentia, which is a book that he wrote. It's the, the title in English is On Eloquence in the Vernacular. And it's basically a book saying that Italy 
will never the Italy should you know strive towards this common language that it lacks that Italy's a collection of all these dialects and he writes Dante writes about the illustrious vernacular that you know that language that can somehow create a sense of cultural unity amongst all this fragmentation and Dante says in that you know basically he's talking about having been a Florentine and now an exile and he says you know now I'm a citizen of the world it's you don't really buy it in Dante because he's so intensely wedded to Florence and so deeply pained by the experience of exile. But I think about that quote when I think of my own situation in that, you know, I, I, I didn't really feel um, that we were a typical American family. We didn't seem, we certainly weren't typically um, Italian in that we were, you know, living in this ethnic limbo. But I also didn't identify with Italian Americans because we were so much closer to Italy than that second and third generation of Italian Americans. So I grew up with this feeling as an outsider, um, and I, I still have it, and, and but not in a bad way. I think it's um, I think ultimately for me it came down to the the feeling that my family came to the United States, and that was my country. That was the citizenship and the feeling of patriotism that they gave me, and that's what I internalized, and then. I could go to Italy, but it would really be as an American, no matter you know how well I spoke the language, how much I knew about the culture, that my parents had made the transition. They had given up their Italian citizenship to do, to do so, and that, you know, that was their legacy to me. Uh, they had given me this new country, and I'm very grateful for it. So I would say that, you know, I feel absolutely comfortable in both worlds, um, the, the American and the Italian world, and also the Italian American world, and, and in a sense, writing this book, uh, this book brought me closer to the Italian American world than I'd ever felt. Um, but that it was really the experience of becoming American that is is what I take from my parents' long, hard journey of immigration. We've been talking with Joseph Luzzi, and you can find his book "My Two Italy's in stores right now. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Andrew Albanese. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PWVP of Business Development, Carl Pritzkat, introduces Book Life, PW's new tool for indie authors, helping them to manage every aspect of the self-publishing process. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, Carl Pritzkat, who's PW's VP of Business Development, introduces us to Book Life, which is PW's new tool for indie authors. Hi, Carl. Hi, you guys. So tell us about Book Life. Well, we launched Book Life recently at Book Expo America. Mm-hmm. Um, And it is a site dedicated to indie authors, which are authors who are publishing their own books. It's built on the success that Publishers Weekly has had over the last four years with its PW Select program. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, the experience that Publishers Weekly has had for over seven years judging uh, Amazon's self-published contest as well. So um, over that time, we discovered that self-publishing was actually exploding. We, of course, we weren't the only ones who discovered that. I think most of the publishing industry has discovered that. Mm -hmm. But we realized the time was right for us to create a site that was dedicated to 
uh, self-publishing authors. Um, so we've created that, and that's what we've called Book Life. So tell us about uh, how Book Life works for, for any of our listeners out there who are self-published authors. And uh, maybe start off first, how did you come up with the idea to, to do this? Well, um, we wanted to collect all of Publishers Weekly's resources about self-publishing into one place that would be very easy for people to identify mm -hmm. and to experience. Um, we also wanted to create an environment where independent authors could uh, connect with each other and share their experiences, share their resources. But most importantly, and, and this was what got the most attention in the publishing industry, we also wanted to allow a free and easy place for self-published authors to submit their books for consideration uh, for PW reviews. And up until this point, PW reviews had only been available through a paid program, even though that they were always uh, independently uh, considered and, and judged on quality. Nonetheless, there was a more complicated way to access them. Now we have basically uh, opened the doors so that anybody um, for in no cost at all, absolutely free, can submit their book to be considered for a publisher's weekly review. Mm -hmm. And so that was a very important step. And, and that change came about because the libraries and booksellers that Publishers Weekly has always served over its 142 years had come to us and said that they needed Publishers Weekly to help them find what the best self-published titles were so that they would know what to bring into their libraries and bookstores. Mm. And we realized that the only way that we were going to be able to do that was to make it easy and uh, readily available for everybody to submit their books. Um, and then from there, we would have to sort through them and find those that met the quality of, of Publishers Weekly. So you mentioned other tools, other resources in Book Life. What else is a part of the system? Um, we have a series of self-evaluations that allow indie authors to sort of judge where they are in various phases of the self-publishing process. Um, then based on that information, we point them off to resources, um, which have been accumulated by Publishers Weekly over the years. So what levels are we talking? So what, what parts of what stages might they be at? We identify um, four stages, three main ones. Uh, the first one is the create stage, which is basically where you are creating your manuscript. And that involves, you know, coming up with the, the story, but then even when you've written it, getting uh, editing, uh, help having people help you edit uh, the, the book or the, the manuscript. Also finding a designer to help you with the cover, which is a very important part of it. The second um, part of the process we call publish, which is, okay, what platform are you going to use to to publish your book? Are you just going to do it as an ebook? Do you want to do a, a print-on-demand mm -hmm. paperback or hardcover book? Uh, do you want to do an audiobook? All of those things. So we, we have a lot of information for that in that process. And then the final process of the three main ones is market, which is, okay, now you've got this thing here. How are you going to tell people about it? How are you going to get them to come, uh, hopefully buy it, but at least know that it exists and, and know that it's out there? Um, we have a fourth process, which is a little less glamorous, which we call manage. And that's just 
you know, the business of your copyright and how are there tax implications to uh, what you're setting up as a self-published author and those types of things. But, but the three ones are three main ones are create, publish and market. And again, we have self evaluations for each of those. So you can kind of feel where you are in the process and, and uh, know what help you might need or, or what resources you might want to reach out to, to, to help you. Does PW offer um, links to other resources outside service providers? Because the indie authors I know make use of a lot of uh, freelance editing, freelance cover design, freelance marketing, that sort of thing. Do, does BookLife help to connect them with other people who can help them out? It will. <laughs> so we are expecting in fall to roll out a fairly robust service provider um, part of the site, which will allow people to find those types of service providers that you're talking about, but also then to be able to rate them um, in a constructive way so it doesn't become a, you know, <laughs> we want people to, to, to really see who the best ones are out there and, and to be able to uh, to, to connect with them very easily. So yes, that'll, that'll be coming very soon. Um, and, and, and as you're saying, that's a huge part of what most indie authors go through because I, I think for me, one of the most interesting parts of this experience has been in putting together this site. And, and I've worked with a lot of indie authors over the years. Um, but you realize that self-publishing is really a misnomer what you're really doing is assembling a team of of people who are going to help you publish your own book and uh. how you connect with that team of people and how you interact with them um, is really important and getting people who who match your needs and expectations is really important too and, and we want to help with that. And are there any social or community aspects of the platform at this point? Yes, absolutely. Um, we collect as much of each author's social media information like Facebook and Twitter and even LinkedIn and Goodreads, all this information with the hope of being able to connect them um, with other authors on the site who are parts of those communities. We have also just this week rolled out some new features on the site so that authors can update the news about their books can also update uh, rev any reviews that they're getting, not just Publishers Weekly reviews, but any reviews anywhere else. Um, and we're now allowing people to upload excerpts of their books to the site so that the other authors on the site or anybody visiting the site can can uh, read an excerpt of the book and be able to to interact with it even more. That sounds very exciting. So where, where do people find all this stuff? At booklife.com. Uh, <laughs> very, very simple. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, Carl, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you guys for thank having you, me. Carl. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 